I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14 and verse 53. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And verse 55, and the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. And our subject is the first trials of Christ. There were three trials before the religious hierarchy of the Jews. First hearing before Annas, former high priest, father-in-law of the serving high priest, Caiaphas, before whom was the second hearing, and then a final hearing just before daybreak of the day of crucifixion, which was also before Caiaphas, which was really only to state the chosen charge before delivering Christ to the Roman authority, to Pilate. So there were three religious trials which would be followed by three hearings by Pilate, the Roman procurator, so three civil, three rather religious, and three civil. And it's the first three that we should be briefly looking at today. Last week, we dealt with the denials of Peter, and now the first three trials. First of all, Christ's humiliation. Here he was, brought bound before, first of all, Annas. I tried to describe what may have been, last study, the high priest's house, a palatial structure for the times, built of stone with an elevated ground floor and a sort of high basement, up the steps into the great reception hall, On the one side, a large reception room where the first hearing was held under Annas. Peter denied the Lord in the courtyard in the centre. And then after that first hearing, Christ was brought bound as a criminal across the courtyard into the opposite reception area where the entire Sanhedrin council of the Jews was gathered with the elders of the people, a considerable number. I won't distinguish between the trials in referring to various incidents this morning to uh, avoid complexity. But here was the trial of Christ. Just imagine that, friends. Christ the Lord equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, member of the triune Godhead, one God, three distinct personalities, persons, something we cannot grasp and understand. And here is the second person of the Godhead, incarnate, entered into a human body and personality to be our representative and our sin-bearer. The one who created all, the one who knows everyone through and through. He knew the life history of everyone who was present in that archbishop's palace. He knew their every thought. 
He held them as it were in his power and in his hand and yet he voluntarily allows himself to be taken and arrested and subjected to trial at their hands. The Lord of Lords, the creator of all things, tried by evil, sinful men. What Christ went through We've thought about the Garden of Gethsemane, that terrible, terrible foretaste of all the suffering that he would bear to take away the sins, the punishment of those who would be saved. And then after this there will be Calvary, the real punishment, the suffering and death, and in the meantime the utter social humiliation of being wound, bound and in due course, thrashed and flogged and nailed to a cross. How far would Christ the Lord go in his great love for his people? He loved them from before the foundation of the world. He was determined to save a vast, vast host which no man number are to come and to suffer humiliation and death for them all and to bear away their eternal weight of punishment but you see him tried by sinful men how far would he go you ask for me what more could he do for me and as we pray in our pastoral prayer is there any trial you and I could possibly undergo that should detach us from our certainty about the love of Christ and the fact that he loves his people with deep, deep affection, with deep, deep feeling and concern and would go through all this for them? Will he not be with us? In every issue of life, should we falter, should faith fail, should we faint when we think of these things? Dear friends, how great is his love for us. Verse 55, the chief priests and all the council sought for witness. But you must understand, they didn't. Do the seeking then. This sums up what had already taken place. We read several times over in the Gospels that prior to this occasion, they had started the planning and begun to look for witnesses against Christ. They were already formulating what they would charge him with when they arrested him. They couldn't arrest him until the time came. They would send officers to arrest him. They would approach him and somehow they couldn't do it. And they would return to the rulers of the people and they would say feebly, we couldn't do it. No man ever spoke like this man. Somehow we couldn't do it. Other times he would just walk through the midst of them because when the time came, he would allow himself 
to be taken and arrested and tried, not before, but for long before the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees were finding witnesses. What did you hear him say? What did you hear him claim? And those witnesses would be lined up. But when they rounded them up and they brought them in the early hours overnight to those two different hearings before Annas and Caiaphas, the people went to pieces. It was a scene of utter confusion. It was a scene of dishonesty and forged and made up charges and accounts. But how it fell to pieces on the moment. I hesitate to use a feeble illustration because this is a serious matter. But this happens. I myself, and I am no one of any significance, mark you, but I myself had occasion many years ago to go to number 10 and the Prime Minister of the day, I had an appointment, came out into the entrance hall inside number 10. I was taken aback by that, let in and immediately the Prime Minister, who was a formidable lady at that time, came to greet me with one attendant to take me into the long room where there would be discussion. And for a moment, I was tongue-tied. And I had to pull myself together. Suddenly, somebody who is eminent or famous is right in front of you. And it affects you somehow. And I remember once on a young people's conference holiday, going back many years, we were right down there at Land's End in Cornwall, and a group of people in our party decided that they would go to the Silly Isles for a day. And they would take the British Airways helicopter that operates down there on a trip to the Silly Isles. And they were joking partly among themselves because on the Silly Isles in St Mary's, the then Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, used to take his holidays. And he had a bungalow down there. These were different days. And there he would go. And they were saying to each other, if we see the Prime Minister, this is what we'll do. And this is how we'll witness to him. And this is what we'll tell him. And this is, we'll give our testimony. And oh, they were quite certain of all this. Well, it was what dreams are made of. And they went to the Silly Isles. They were walking along a coastal path. And lo and behold, there ahead of them, was a lone man without even a security detail sitting on a bench, smoking a pipe. And they walked past him, it was the Prime Minister. What did you say? What did you say? Nothing. We were tongue-tied. We all fought. And these were young people in their early 20s, some of them very outspoken folk. And they were tongue-tied. They didn't say anything. And they came back sheepishly. We couldn't. It happens. Somebody eminent. Somebody famous. Very famous. Somebody special. Well, this was different and yet similar in a way. The trials of Christ 
All these hand-picked liars were brought in to say their peace, to accuse him falsely. And somehow they were completely tongue-tied when they saw him there, bound, powerless. They saw the Lord, the one who had healed thousands, the one who so many of the people acclaimed. And as soon as they got into that reception room, they were muddled and confused, and their testimonies contradicted each other. And even the high priests who would have taken anything had to dismiss it, had to stand them down. That's what you're reading about. Verse 55, And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness. Call them, call them against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And it's more elaborately put in the other Gospels. Mark is the briefest on this because he is writing a tract for unconverted people and he summarizes in a lot of places and he summarizes here utter confusion look at the kind of thing but I shall pass over this verse 58 we heard him say I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and within three days I will build another made without hands they didn't understand what he was saying but even those accounts that had an element of truth in them didn't add up. And so verse 60 of Mark 14, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked a direct question. Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? He's going to have to ask him directly. Is he the Christ? Aren't you going to say anything? Christ wouldn't dignify all these lies with a single word at this point. What is it which these witness against thee? Fancy having to ask the one accused to explain better the testimony of the false witnesses against him. But I want to turn you to another passage, and this is so important in the Gospel of Luke and chapter 22 and verse 67. Listen to this. Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you a question, ye will not answer me. What's that about? Mark doesn't mention that. But Luke tells us this, that there was a little more said here. When the high priest said, aren't you going to answer? Christ said, if I did answer, it would serve no purpose. You wouldn't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you cannot answer and you won't answer. What is he referring to? Well, look back for this. I'm sorry to turn you from one gospel to another, but it helps. Look at Matthew 22 and uh, verse 41. 
while the Pharisees were gathered together, this is just a little beforehand, three days beforehand, all the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests came together in the temple to ask him a series of questions. And they put up their best spokesman. And he answered them all. And they could say nothing. And they fell silent. And then he asks them a question. It's a very key question. And this is what he referred to in the trial. He asked them, verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? What do you think about Messiah? They didn't believe Messiah would be God. They should have done. It was in the scriptures. It was in the prophecies of the Old Testament that the Son of Man, it's in Daniel 7, for example, when he came, would be divine. He would be God as well as man. They didn't believe that. How can this man say he's the Messiah? He's uttering blasphemy. He's only a man, they said of Christ. He may somehow have this capacity to heal. He may have this amazing teaching, but he's a man. Messiah won't be a man. They didn't believe their own scriptures. So Christ challenged them. Three days before the trial, this was his last occasion that they ever questioned him and he rounded off it off with a question to them. It's so valuable for you to remember this. What think ye of Christ? What do you think about him? What do you believe about Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, he's the son of David. Everybody knows that. He's the son of David. Why do you ask such a simple question? And then the Lord replies in this way. Matthew 22 verse 43. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit, speaking under the inspiration of the infallible spirit of God, how does David call him Lord? Saying, and Christ quotes Psalm 110, here are the words, exactly as in Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, Supreme Lord, that means, my Supreme Lord, how is he his son? And they couldn't answer. And they couldn't answer because the answer, of course, is that both are true. David is his son because he is God. He's the son of God. David is his creation. And yet he also, who is God, became incarnate and came as a man and is notionally the descendant of David. So both are true. He's David's son. 
and at the same time, he's David's Lord and David's creator. So the Messiah is divine. He is God as well as man. And they were speechless. Yes, the psalm says that. Look at verse 44 of Matthew 22. The Lord, you notice the word Lord is in capital letters, said unto my Lord, the second Lord is upper and lower case. It isn't capitalized. Why not? Because it's a different word. The first word in capital letters, Lord, is a representation of the divine name, the divine initials. We say Jehovah, the supreme God, who is self-sufficient, the great I Am. The second Lord is a different word. It means supreme governor. And there are two. The Lord, the divine name, is used here undoubtedly of the Father, says to my Lord, who is actually his equally his God, says to Christ, he is Lord, governor, supreme executive of the universe, Lord over all. Two distinct members of the one Godhead. And this Lord has obviously been to earth in the psalm. And he's told, sit thou on my right hand, be my equal, well he was before, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. What does that mean? Well, to make your enemies a footstool means that they're lying down. That's what happened in ancient nations. The king conquered an enemy and the enemy had to lie down in the dust, face in the dust, in humiliation, while the conquering king sat on his throne and put his foot upon him. And he became, as it were, symbolically, his footstool, his humiliated, defeated one. So it's just an expression when used by God. God doesn't resort to that type of thing, but it's an expression. All the haters of Christ, the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees, with the exception of those who turned to Christ, some did, but most didn't. Those who hated him, who screamed to put Christ to death, who solicited Pontius Pilate to execute him, and all in the history of the world who've been haters of Christ and the gospel and opponents and enemies will be humiliated in the day that Christ returns. So there it is, quoted from Psalm 110. You could quote exactly the same thing from Daniel chapter 7. And verses 13 and 14, it's all there. Two of the three persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Incarnate Son, are talked about. And how there'll be a great day of reckoning, a final judgment, when the, the Son, Christ, will return in power and glory. 
It was all prophesied in the Old Testament. And Christ effectively quotes from two sources, Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7. And he challenges them. This is the big question. The last question he ever put to the chief priests. What do you make of Messiah? Whose son is he? Firmly they say, David's son. He isn't divine. Well then, why does David call him Lord? And speak of him as being restored to the right hand of the Father. They couldn't answer. They understood it. But they wouldn't receive it. They wouldn't have it. And that's why Christ, and I go back to uh, Mark and uh, uh, chapter 14, that's why when Christ says to them, I am he, he had just said, if I ask you a question, you won't answer it. That had happened three days before. They'd been helped, they'd been challenged to see that it was a divine Messiah they should expect, and they'd repudiated and rejected it. They wouldn't have it, so they couldn't understand. And they were in darkness, and they never saw that they were shouting for the execution of the Lord of glory, their Messiah. The chief priests, Mark 14, 55, and all the council sought for witnesses. They found none, down to verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst, and eventually, he says in verse 61, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Actually, he'd never said that before this moment to the leading Jews. He had indirectly said it. He had called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man meant a great deal to Jews. The Son of Man was the title of the Messiah given in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. All Jews knew that the Son of Man means the Messiah. So he had used that title. It was Christ's favorite title of himself. And when the crowds welcomed him in Jerusalem and they said, Hosanna in the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they said, he was the son of David, son of God. And he didn't stop them. And the chief priests were angry because he didn't silence his supporters when they called him the Messiah. So he'd revealed before, many times over, and especially in the parables. The parables disclose the divine Messiah, the one who would come. And he told the disciples several times over. And they had echoed this back to him. 
Who do you say that I am? And Peter stood forth and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He told the disciples and his close followers. He denounced it indirectly, but never before this moment, when asked by the high priest, had he said, I am. In the other Gospels, it's differently put. Words are used to this effect. You say that I am. Which actually means, I am as you say. You speak, you rightly say it. But we don't understand the way it's expressed from the Greek. It is as you say. Mark says it more bluntly in his tract. That means, I am. No mistake about it. The great affirmation. But they couldn't see it. And they rejected it. And look what Christ adds here. And it's more elaborately put in Matthew's Gospel. More of the quotation. Verse 62 of Mark 14. Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's a slight elaboration on just what you see in Daniel chapter 7 in the prophecy. And everything is affirming his messianic office. Ye shall see the Son of Man, that means Messiah, Every Jew knew that, sitting on the right hand of power, the right hand of the Father on high, that means equal to him, divine, and coming in the clouds of heaven, which actually comes first. In the prophecy, and here, it's put an unusual way round, for a reason I won't go into right now, but you would naturally read, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and sitting on the right hand of God. Of course, they would see it in the last day, as we will. The day will come when Christ will return and take power and the judgment day will be brought in. You and I may die before he comes and we shall be in the paradise of Christ as souls waiting for that great day to come when Christ will return and judge the earth and clothe us in resurrection bodies for the new heavens and the new earth. But as disembodied souls in the paradise of Christ when he returns to earth, standing there in the gallery, we shall see it all, even more clearly than if we were still alive on earth when he returns. And the lost, the condemned, the damned, reserved, as it were, in chains for the day of judgment, they will be able to see it too. Christ says so right here as he quotes Daniel. 
and Psalm 110. And here he puts it. You'll see these things and you'll be horrified. What a difference when Christ comes. Christian people, the very atmosphere will change. A tremendous light will flood in from everywhere. There'll be indescribable tokens and changes. You know how it is when there's going to be a really great storm. And before you look at the sky, you can feel a kind of tension in the air and a chill. You must have observed those moments when something really dramatic is going to happen. You just multiply that sense many times. Extraordinary things will take place. And believers won't be terrified. They'll know instinctively that the great day has come that Christ is returning, that all things are coming to an end, that all opposition and unbelief will be ended, and that the everlasting age and the day of judgment has come to pass. And unbelievers will be terrified and alarmed. There is now no hope. And this is what Christ firmly says to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And he condemns them. Here it is in verse 66 or verse 63. Christ said, You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Our time is out but I'd like to turn you just as we close to 1 Corinthians and chapter 2, a passage which we read. The chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees understood nothing. They couldn't see it. Not surprised. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's speaking to Greeks. This is Corinth. Proud, proud Corinth. He's speaking to those steeped in Greek learning, in the classics, if you like. He's speaking to people trained in the Socratic method of thinking. Does he try to convince them? Does he use their reasoning? Does he use their wisdom? Not at all. He goes straight to Christ and to revelation, to revealed truth. Look at verse 4. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. You didn't hear any Socratic structure from me. You didn't hear, says the Apostle Paul, anything that owed anything to the philosophers and the teachers of Greece. Why not? 
because it was opposed to the way of God and the thinking of God, because it was utterly pagan and yet utterly materialistic at the same time. Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, had been learned in Greek authors, condemned it all. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. We apply this to any human learning which is used to try to determine what's true eternally and spiritually. But Paul was speaking to Greeks and he was talking about their learning and their thinking structures. And just like the princes of the Jews who executed Christ, they couldn't understand the gospel and revelation and the ways of God. Verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, Greek thinking, but in the power of God, altogether and entirely different. And verse 7, I'm coming to conclusion, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, hidden in the scriptures, and given only to those who have spiritual light and understanding. And we could go further, verse 8, which none of the princes of this world knew, Jews or Greeks, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they couldn't recognize him, and they couldn't grasp it. And verse 9, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. The thinking of the Greeks is useless to us. The world was enshrouded in superstition, superstitious darkness. But then the devil covers his bases. The time is coming, he said, when people will shake off superstition and ignorance and they will appreciate learning and reasoning and understanding I must have a system in place that grips the world and captures minds which is enticing enticing words of man's wisdom which appeals to people oh this method of reasoning this is true critical thinking. This teaches us to think. This is how we should evaluate and analyze everything by this. And the devil called his chief lieutenants. And what did they devise? The substance of the thinking of Greek philosophy and Greek authors. It is pagan. It is rationalistic. It is opposed to the thought structure of the scriptures and of revelation. You can't go back to that. Some people want to, but you can't. It's foolishness. It's a disaster. But I'm getting off track, and I want to take you just down to 1 Corinthians 2 to close with, and verses 13 to 16. It's the wisdom of God that we speak. 
It's from the Bible we learn to think, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. That meant for Paul, which your Greek teachers teach you, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And verse 14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. No, you can't have that. It's Socratic reasoning you must follow. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Dear friends, what a precious thing it is that we poor rebel sinners, our minds captured by everything which is earthly, were blessed by illumination from the Holy Spirit in the great mercy of God. And we saw Christ and the way of salvation and the ways of God and the great thought pattern for us of God's word, God's book. Well, going back to Mark 14, they tried him, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and in their blindness, they humiliated him and sent him to Pontius Pilate. What he would go through out of love for us, his people.